Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. This episode is being produced in partnership with the American Society of Transplantation and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and focuses on the COVID-19 vaccine and its possible effect on special populations, such as people living with HIV, pregnant women, and the transplant population. To discuss this are IDSA member Dr. Rachel Bender-Ignacio of the University of Washington, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists member Dr. Denise Jamison with Emory University, and the American Society of Transplantation member Dr. Aruna Subramanian of Stanford University. Thank you all for joining me. Dr. Bender-Ignacio, I'll start with you. What do we know about the effectiveness and safety profiles of the COVID-19 vaccines in people with HIV? And is HIV considered a high-risk medical condition warranting prioritization for vaccination? Right now, although we have no specific clinical trial data specific for people with HIV, each of the major studies with vaccines applicable to the U.S., including Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, have included each between 100 and 200 people with HIV into their studies. And Johnson & Johnson, which received its um, emergency use authorization just this past weekend on February 27th, included at least 1,200 people with HIV. The Novavax study, which is ongoing right now, has also made a point of actively recruiting people with HIV to their study, although the total enrollment number hasn't been finalized and enrollment to that study has just closed. Although we don't have specific outcome measures for people with HIV in those studies, so far amongst all of those studies, there have been no safety signals among people with HIV. And although the the numbers are small, of course, compared to the total number of people who have been enrolled in those studies and who have received vaccines in the real world. And because the number of people with HIV enrolled in those studies was small, too small to perform a subset analysis, the enrolled people with HIV were excluded from the primary efficacy outcomes in those publications. And I'm not currently aware of any specific analyses looking at the antibody or T-cell responses specifically for people with HIV, treated or untreated yet, but these are definitely forthcoming. And ideally, we can have a pooled analysis across clinical trials and including some prospectively enrolled data from real-life cohorts of people with HIV who have received COVID vaccines. And this could be really meaningful data to give us the signal that we have appropriate antibody and T-cell responses to these vaccines. And although there is no reason to believe that the safety of any of these vaccines, whether mRNA, adenovirus vector, or protein vaccine should be different for people with HIV compared to the general population. The main question on the table is really whether certain subgroups with HIV might or might not mount as robust antibody or T-cell responses, meaning that the vaccine efficacy for these groups might be lower than the general population. And based on experience with other vaccines throughout time, the people who remain um, at, at highest risk of not having a good response to these vaccines might be people with a low NADER CD4 count or those with a currently low CD4 to CD8 ratio for those who are not virologically suppressed. And that was probably uh, a more important driver than the current CD4 count. Nadia, you also asked about the risk of severe COVID outcomes. Just living with HIV without other comorbidities or immune dysregulation is unlikely to be a high-risk predictor for severe COVID outcomes. But we know that many people with HIV have also other metabolic comorbidities or higher risks of exposure, including an increased likelihood of unstable housing, among other factors which may increase exposure. In Scenics, the CIFAR Network of Integrated Clinical Systems, which just completed a review of almost 16,000 people with HIV in the United States, 
of whom about 580 people with HIV were diagnosed with COVID during um, 2020. Among these, the relative risk of hospitalization was about 2.3, and those were the CD4 count of less than 350, compared with higher CD4 counts after multivariable adjustment. Few people in this database were not on antiretroviral therapy or were virally suppressed, and we didn't see an increased risk of severe disease in those groups. The association with severe outcomes associated with the CD4 count less than 350 has also been replicated in European studies, which has resulted in the European AIDS Clinical Society and other European bodies also recommending expedited vaccines for people with HIV and the CD4 count less than 350 are not on, on antiretroviral therapy. So overall, this signal of having a low CD4 count is probably the most um, important or modifiable driver that we see among people with HIV in terms of predicting severe COVID outcomes and who we would suggest expediting in terms of vaccine prioritization. Dr. Bender Ignacio, what if a person with HIV has a low CD4 count? Should they still get vaccinated? Absolutely. I have no reservations about recommending any of the currently authorized vaccines for people with HIV, regardless of CD4 count. None of the vaccines with an EUA in the United States, Moderna or Pfizer mRNA vaccines, nor the J&J adenovirus vector vaccine or live virus vaccine, which means that they couldn't lead to SARS-CoV-2 replication in immunocompromised persons. And both the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca adenovirus vector vaccines are non-replication competent vaccines. So their safety profile is excellent, including for those with impaired T-cell immunity. And as far as efficacy, um, as I just mentioned, there's a theoretical benefit of a two vaccine series in people with a low CD4 count or who are not virally suppressed. Given the possibility that a response to the vaccine might be less robust overall, and therefore a, a regimen with a booster might be more important for particular subpopulations. That said, this is currently a theoretical concern, and I would offer any available vaccine to my own patients, with a preference only for whichever vaccine is most rapidly available. And it's possible that we may have data to suggest that certain populations should end up um, getting a two-shot regimen or booster to optimize protection, but it may be that we all end up getting boosters to encompass new variants over time. So for right now, no reservations. The most important thing we can do as HIV care providers is address vaccine hesitancy amongst our patients, which may be explicitly due to immune concerns of living with HIV or maybe more general concerns rightfully expressed by many communities of color, for example, concerning the speed at which these vaccines were developed. So it's, it's our duty to, to address these and, and encourage our patients to be vaccinated. Excellent points, Dr. Bender Ignacio. Thank you. Dr. Jameson, turning to you now and the million-dollar question on so many minds, should expectant mothers get the vaccine? Can you answer that as well as what the data is telling us as far as known risks to fetuses and mothers? Pregnant women should be offered the vaccine and they should have all their questions answered and they should review their risks and benefits of vaccination. And that's based on several issues. The first is that there are known risks of COVID to pregnant women. We know now that COVID can be more severe in pregnancy. Pregnant women are more likely to be hospitalized, to require um, intensive care unit care, um, to be intubated, and unfortunately to die. Preventing COVID during pregnancy is of utmost importance. The other piece of this that we're learning is that having COVID while pregnant probably puts your infant at increased risk for certain pregnancy outcomes such as preterm birth, particularly if you're severely ill. 
Um, we say in obstetrics that if the mother doesn't do well, the baby doesn't do well. And in most cases, is if you're severely ill, there can be consequences for the infant. We also know that mother to child transmission is possible, although luckily it seems to occur rarely. So there are many reasons why pregnant women should protect themselves against COVID. In terms of what we know about the safety of vaccines, unfortunately, it is relatively limited because these vaccines were not properly tested in phase two, phase three randomized clinical trials. Some manufacturers are now including pregnant women in placebo-controlled clinical trials, which is a whole other discussion. But what we do know about the vaccines, for the mRNA vaccine, there were DART uh, studies, developmental and reproductive toxicology studies in rodents. Um, There were no safety signals that were concerning for those studies. And then there were a handful of patients, about 18 pregnant persons enrolled inadvertently in the randomized controlled trials of the mRNA vaccines, both Moderna and Pfizer. The most safety data that we have now is coming from the tens of thousands of women, who pregnant women who have chosen to be vaccinated. The CDC is now collecting vSafe data. That's the app that goes on your phone and there's a pregnancy module and there are no concerning safety signals, although we really need more information on that data. And hopefully that'll be coming out soon. In terms of the adenovector vaccines, there's a little bit more information. They're the same DART trials, the same studies in rodents. Um, and there are about 1,500, more than 1,500 pregnant persons who were enrolled mostly in the Ebola trials using a similar vaccine platform, Adeno26 platform, as well as some pregnant persons in HIV trial, and then just eight uh, reported from the Johnson & Johnson clinical trials. So we have a little bit more information, but if you look at vaccines in general, vaccines overall, regardless of platform, are um, generally safe in pregnancy We've been giving vaccines to pregnant women and recommending vaccines to pregnant women for many decades. And so it's really important to look at both your risks, risk of COVID, of contracting COVID, against any theoretical risks of a vaccine to make the important decision of of whether or not to get vaccinated. However, in general, I am recommending to my patients that they get vaccinated for COVID if they're at risk of contracting COVID. Sticking with you, Dr. Jameson, we've heard so many stories of women delaying vaccination because they're thinking of becoming pregnant soon and are worried their fertility might in some way be impacted by the vaccine. What are your thoughts here? Unfortunately, this is a widespread myth with no scientific foundation, the fact that COVID vaccines could potentially affect fertility. Um, as I think there's a, there's a myth that they spoke the spike protein that's coded for by the vaccine is similar to a protein necessary for placental development. And as far as I can tell, this myth got started and was attributed to a Pfizer scientist who left the company more than a decade ago. And there was a blog that supposedly was attributed to this scientist that I don't think has been verified in any way. But there's an immunologist I read in the New York Times, Stephanie Langer from Duke, who I think summarized it nicely when she said, mixing them up would be akin to mistaking a rhinoceros for a jaguar because they are wearing the same collar. So I think she nicely uh, explained that there's really no scientific basis to this unfortunate myth that is widely circulating. Um, And in fact, 
We counsel our patients who are considering pregnancy to make sure that they're up to date on all their vaccines prior to becoming pregnant, making sure you're fully vaccinated, including getting the COVID vaccine if it's available to you, is an excellent idea as part of your pregnancy planning process. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to covid19learningnetwork.org. Thank you for your insight, Dr. Jamison. Dr. Subramanian, turning to you now, I'd like to talk about transplant patients. The biggest worry there being that they will reject a recently received organ. What special risks are associated with this population and receiving the vaccine? It's true that transplant patients have been given the gift of life and want to do everything they can to safeguard that precious organ they've been given. Thankfully, we have no reason to believe these vaccines won't be as safe in the transplant population as they are in the general population. Even though transplant patients weren't included in the studies of COVID vaccines, now there are a large number of healthcare workers who have received the vaccine through their hospitals, if they're healthcare workers, there have been no issues of safety so far reported. A recently published letter to the journal Transplantation had 187 transplant recipients who had the first dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine and there were no cases of rejection of their allograft. The majority did report some arm pain and a third had fatigue and headache as expected. But as I said, there were no cases of rejection reported. We do have safety data in other vaccines in transplant recipients, especially various doses of influenza vaccine. Initially, there was a concern for rejection, but recent studies have shown no evidence for rejection, even with high-dose influenza vaccine. We do need more information in this area, but I'm quite satisfied that so far the information we have does show safety and really rejection should not be a major concern in, in patients. We do have to remember that when we're weighing the risks and benefits, as Dr. Jameson mentioned, that the side effects of the vaccine are better than a transplant patient actually getting COVID-19, right? We know highly immunosuppressed patients can have a more prolonged course of illness. SARS-CoV-2 can affect a transplanted lung very badly. COVID-19 treatments can affect transplanted livers and kidneys. And when transplant patients have to receive steroids and further immunosuppression for treatment of their COVID-19, they are at risk of greater complications to their organ. So I feel there are clear clinical benefits to getting vaccinated, and these really far outweigh the potential risks. So we highly recommend all our transplant patients to get a COVID-19 vaccine. A follow-up question for you now, Dr. Subramanian. What can we learn from the data about these vaccines' effectiveness in a transplant patient? There is some emerging safety data in transplant patients We do need to learn more about the immunogenicity and efficacy of these vaccines after transplant and really understand the optimal timing of when patients should receive these COVID-19 vaccines in relation to their transplant. 
What we do know, you know, is that transplant recipients do have a more blunted response to vaccines in general, but we routinely offer non-live virus vaccinations to transplant patients. Since the dosing regimens picked for COVID-19 vaccines were optimized for immunogenicity, even in elderly patients, we hope they will elicit a protective response in transplant and other immunosuppressed patients. We will need to study whether transplant patients develop adequate neutralizing antibody titers and for how long they last. At least in influenza vaccine studies, we do know that risk factors for a lower immune response are having a lung transplant, being on higher doses of mycophenolate, so higher levels of immunosuppression, and being less than six months post-transplant. It's likely we will see that even in SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, these same risk factors may hold out, but we need to really study this further. Consistent with guidelines for other vaccinations, the American Society of Transplant guidance is to wait at least one month post-transplant and possibly at least three months post-transplant if severe T or B cell depleting therapy is used for induction therapy around transplant. So if people are severely immunosuppressed, you may wait three months. But it's important to really target patients who are awaiting transplant. So pre-transplant candidates really need to be focused on and transplant programs need to make sure these patients can get fully vaccinated if possible before they go to transplant. This is the time when we really need to optimize their access to vaccines. The other group that could really help to get vaccinated are family members and caregivers of transplant recipients. We have to remember to prioritize those folks as well in order to protect our transplant recipients. And the critical fact overall is that some benefit is better than none. And transplant patients do develop some protection from vaccines. So we strongly recommend SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in this population. We will need to study whether a further booster shot or a different schedule for vaccination will be helpful for patients in future. And as I said, what is the exact optimal timing is, is not yet known. And yet we do recommend at least one month and in some patients three months post-transplant that everybody should get vaccinated. And that seems to be the common advice, not just for immunocompromised individuals, but for everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Subramanian. This last question I'd like to direct to the entire panel. Doctors, can you briefly discuss the importance of creating credible and thorough registries for all immunocompromised patients and special populations? Dr. Bender Ignacio, I'll start with you. That's a really key point to ensure confidence in these vaccines. And so using common reporting tools like VSAFE, as Dr. Jameson mentioned, um, is really important just because we can't have a registry for every tiny subcondition or every variation of immunocompromise or, or special medical comorbidities. So these big, broad tools that are, are you know, analyzed across populations will be very important. But I, I do also think that it's really important to create prospective longitudinal registries that include blood samples. Longitudinally, so um, as as everyone on this panel mentioned, we can continue to evaluate the duration of of vaccine responses and understand for different populations and subpopulations how durable vaccine responses may be for people who we expect might have a, a suboptimal immune response. 
it's going to be so important to collect data going forward. And I agree that these large databases are very, very helpful. There are specific databases that are specific to transplant patients at different transplant centers. All the transplant centers are encouraged to report their data into these databases. However, it's still optional. So it would be really nice to have everybody participate and, and gather as much data going forward as we can. So I would just say in terms of pregnancy, at least in terms of COVID, the opportunity to carefully and thoughtfully include pregnant women in randomized clinical trials, I think that ship has sailed. Although some of the manufacturers are not now trying to include pregnant women in randomized clinical trials that include a placebo arm, I'm not sure it's justifiable at this point now that we're urging pregnant women to get the vaccine after careful consideration. So I think in this current context that unfortunately that we find ourselves in, I think these registries are critically important to collecting information about the safety and hopefully the effectiveness of these vaccines in pregnant women. Systems such as CDC's vSafe, which is collecting information on tens of thousands of pregnant women who are opting to be vaccinated, that information is critically important. And I hope that we begin to see safety data widely disseminated from CDC's vSafe. In addition, some of the vaccine manufacturers have set up registries and other countries such as the UK, United Kingdom, have set up really nice surveillance systems for obstetric patients. It's critically important to include pregnant women in surveillance systems. And then I think it's critically important that we think ahead for the next emerging pathogen. There'll be another pathogen that emerges Hopefully it won't be as large a pandemic, but I can't imagine that there won't be another large outbreak. So we need to plan now for how to thoughtfully and carefully include pregnant women in all safety and efficacy evaluations, not just thinking about them sort of after the fact. Any final points, doctors? Any pregnant woman should talk to her healthcare provider about the risks and benefits of vaccination and understand that in this time of COVID, there are risks of not getting vaccinated. There are risks to doing nothing. And I would urge uh, pregnant women to carefully consider getting vaccinated. And overall, as I said, I'm urging my pregnant patients to get vaccinated. Thus far, I have found that for so many of my HIV primary care patients, just having that conversation with them, in some cases, very readily strips away some, you know, well-founded concerns that people have about safety or, you know, myth, medical myths that are out there. And really for, for any population, but for people with HIV, especially that conversation, that one-on-one conversation with a trusted healthcare provider can do so much to encouraging people to accept vaccination. I agree. For transplant patients, I think they, as I said, they want to protect their organ at all costs. So this is really part of that care and having the conversation with our transplant patients is is very important. And I just want to emphasize that people who are candidates for transplant who are on the wait list should really be targeted to be vaccinated. And sometimes we forget transplant caregivers. They're very important to be vaccinated as well. So patients and their families should really receive this vaccine and we should talk to them in a holistic way to allay any concerns, as I think the benefits far outweigh the risks here of these vaccines. 
At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Supermanian, Jameson, and Bender Ignacio for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.